Let's pray together. O Lord our God, we pray now that by your Spirit you would speak to us and teach us, inspire us, rebuke us. Just have your way in us as your word is spoken and preached. Lord, would you achieve all that you would want to achieve, even through weak human words. Lord, we pray that they would take on new significance by the power of your Spirit. Lord, prepare our hearts to hear what you have to say to us this evening. In Jesus' name, amen. As Protestants, and particularly perhaps as Presbyterians, we're not very good at following liturgical calendars, but today is Reformation Sunday, which is the Sunday closest to the day, the 31st of October, when Martin Luther supposedly nailed his 95 theses to the door of Wittenberg Cathedral just outside Berlin. I say supposedly because, believe it or not, Luther never claimed to have nailed his theses to the door. And that claim came from one of his uh, colleagues who actually didn't even know him at the time. He only met him a year after the events. Um, so some historians stick to it. You know, it's folklore. People think it happened. Some say, no, well, he maybe pinned it up on the door like as you would pin something on a notice board. And others say it didn't happen at all. We simply don't know and we probably never will. But whether he did or not, tomorrow marks 505 years since the events of that day when Luther definitely did send those theses by mail to Albert of Brandenburg, who was the Archbishop. And what Luther did on that day was to light a spark in Europe of incredible proportions, probably something not seen before, certainly in the church. But some people would question whether this is something we should celebrate. After all, the Reformation, it started wars, or at least sometimes it was the excuse given by kings who took one side or the other, depending on what suited them at the time. And one commentator in a documentary back in 2013 said this, in many ways, the Reformation and the bitterness and division it represents reminds us of the worst aspects of our religious instincts. It's harsh words and, and it's undeniably true that sometimes um, very godly and well-intentioned people can disagree with others in ways that maybe undermine the gospel they believe. But I'm not sure this was true about Luther and the reformers because Luther wasn't trying to create a, a breakaway group or a Protestant church. He wasn't trying to cause division. I think if you could travel back in time and tell Luther or any of the reformers for that matter that you belong to a Protestant church or a Presbyterian church, to use an Ulster phrase, he'd look at you as if your head was cut. He wouldn't know what you were talking about because that wasn't his idea at all. What had happened with the sort of development of the printing press Bibles got into people's hands, people started translating them into their own languages, and with increased education, that became more widespread. And as Luther translated, particularly the New Testament, he was trying to get the church to go back, not to, not to split off, not to splinter the church in any way. He's saying, look, this is what the early church did. This is what the early church believed. This is what the apostles believed. And he was trying to get them back to that. He wasn't trying to break away. In fact, a friend of mine who is a um, Presbyterian minister, I know he, he doesn't describe himself as a Protestant. He describes himself as a Reformed Catholic. 
Because that's what Luther was trying to do. There is one Catholic or universal church and Luther was trying to reform it. It's not about being separatist or anything like that. It's just trying to get back to the scriptures. Now, Luther didn't use all the terms about him that we use today. Um, his teaching is often summed up in what are known as the five solas of the Reformation, or if you're like me and prefer the English, the five unglies of the Reformation. Um, lots of people like to show off and say them in Latin. But Luther's teaching was essentially that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, according to the scriptures alone, to the glory of God alone. And obviously that was in opposition to the Roman church at the time. They were teaching that the church had the same authority as the scriptures. So if, if the Pope said it, it was as good as scripture. They said it wasn't only Christ who could forgive, priests could forgive, not just Christ alone. They had works kind of caught up in salvation so you could kind of earn your salvation or maybe even buy it by um, buying indulgences and, and priests would pray for the forgiveness of your sins. So in a sense it could be earned also things like the worship of saints, which would take the glory away from God alone. So Luther, this rather eccentric man, he set about making his argument against the establishment. And he wasn't perfect, far from it. And we'll not go into it tonight, we, but we can read plenty about Luther's flaws. But we can also be encouraged because God used this imperfect man to point the church to truth. Luther put himself in a lot of danger by standing up in the way he did. He felt really passionately about his theology, particularly of how we're saved. He thought that was vital to the church and it was worth fighting about. His passion comes across in his writing. I've had a lot of fun this week reading bits of Luther. Um, on one occasion, I think my personal favorite, um, when he was arguing against those um, as opponents and he was arguing that we are saved through faith alone, he said they had looks on their faces as cows look at a new gate. In other words, not much going on between the ears. But tonight we're going to look at just two of those five solas or onlys, um, by grace alone, through faith alone. We read about them earlier in Ephesians 2, and I'm just going to reread verses 8 to 10. For it is by grace you have been saved, through faith. And this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Why was it that in the Reformation, so much of the debate is focused around how we are saved? I mean, surely the important thing, even if we don't completely understand that properly, surely the important thing is to just get people saved, and then we can think about how to live and, and how we do church after that point. But if we think that way, we, we miss the point somewhat. Um, one commentator, Martin Lloyd-Jones, has said that we only understand who we are as Christians when we understand how we have been saved. When we get how we were saved, we actually know what it is to be saved. Our understanding of becoming a Christian has a profound impact on what it means to actually be a Christian. So far from kind of abstract theology debates, these verses and these solas are immensely practical and have implications for how we live out our everyday life as Christians. In the discipleship groups, we were looking at a little quote last week from Tim Keller, and he said that the gospel is not just the ABCs of Christianity, it's the A to Z of Christianity. 
If you don't like Martin Lloyd-Jones or Tim Keller, well, Paul says it for himself in Colossians chapter two. He says in verse six, therefore, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, so walk in him. Just as you received him, so walk. Not, well, you've received him, so now I want you to do this or that other thing. No, just as you've received him, so walk in the same way. It's crucial for us to walk with Jesus that we actually understand how we've been saved by Jesus. And Paul is really keen that the Ephesians get this. Um, If you've been joining us on Sunday evenings in Ravenhill, we've just finished looking through the seven letters to the churches at the start of the book of Revelation. And if you can think back, the first letter was written to the church in Ephesus. And what does Christ say to that church? They've forsaken their first love. The church in Ephesus isn't a perfect church. They've got problems. They face persecution from the Romans, from Jews who are unhappy about all this Jesus stuff. They must have sin issues in the church since um, Jesus says that they've abandoned their first love and that's picking up that Old Testament picture of God's people being unfaithful to him. You might have noticed in the call to worship tonight that the Lord said they disobeyed him even though he was a husband to them. And so Paul wants to address all of this to the Ephesians. He, he wants to address how they live as a church. He wants them to be united. He wants to tell them how they're to live as families, as marriage units in the workplace. He wants them to recognize that even though they're being persecuted, their real enemy isn't flesh and blood, but it's spiritual. He wants them spiritually to put on the armor of God. He wants them to be persistent in prayer. But all of those things are at the end of the letter. That's not how he starts He begins in chapter one with their identity in Christ. They've been known by God, chosen in Christ before the creation of the world. He tells them how they're blessed with spiritual blessings in Christ. He prays that they would know God more, that they would know his will more. And then in chapter two, he builds on all that by telling them how they were saved. They need to know how to live. They need to know all that practical stuff. But in order to get there, they first need to know who they are. So let's work our way through these three verses in Ephesians 2. As I say, I read all 10 verses in the original Greek. They were one very long sentence. This is the bane of the life of any Greek student. When the professor says to you, now here's a very long sentence that Paul wrote, tell me what the main verb is. If you were in my class, it was just guesswork because there could be any number of verbs in the sentence and who knows what the main one is. But grammatically speaking, people who are much cleverer than me say that the main verb of the sentence is in verse five when it says that God made us alive in Christ. That to be made alive is the main verb and the NIV gives us a clue because that's the title they give to this little section. So this whole paragraph, we, we have to see it through the lens of being made alive in Christ. And in verse eight, Paul says, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith and this not from yourselves, it is the gift of God. We're saved by grace. What is grace then? Well, um, when I grew up, I was always told that grace is like this little acrostic, G-R-A-C-E, God's riches at Christ's expense. That's absolutely true. That's what we get, God's riches, how it happened. It was at Christ's expense. But it's more than that because grace is not only God's riches at Christ's expense, but those riches we get are completely undeserved and unmerited. Grace is God's undeserved and unmerited favor given to us. We're given that favor, that love and grace even though we don't deserve it. 
We're sinners. Now, I imagine in church in Ravenhill Presbyterian on a Sunday night, it's not news to anybody that, that we're sinners. Um, I gather most people here are believers. You've heard the gospel before. You know that we are sinners. But I wonder sometimes if we really do get that. Because when we talk about the, the pre-Christian stage of our lives, we like to use metaphors, many of them from the Bible. We just sang some of them. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. You know, I was in chains, but now those chains are gone. And those are all biblical pictures. There's, there's nothing wrong with them. You know, the prodigal son who was lost, but is now found. Paul says we were spiritually blind, but now we see. We were in the dark, now we're in the light. But if you know the story of the prodigal son from Luke 15, you'll know that the father actually gives two metaphors at the end. He says to the older son, he says, your brother was dead, but is now alive. He was lost and now is found. And I think we prefer the lost metaphor because there's a chance even when we are hopelessly lost that we might you know, find the right road again. We might find our way all by ourselves. We prefer the blind metaphor because there's still a chance that even if somebody can't see very well, they might be able to find the way on their own. I'm very short-sighted. When I get up in the morning, I can see nothing. I put my glasses on or I put my contact lenses in and I can see. But what we need to realize is that to be spiritually lost or spiritually blind or in the dark or of uncircumcised heart or whatever picture you want to use, those things are to be spiritually dead. It's death. It, it, it's not just being lost. It is that, but it's death. It goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. God says, after Adam and Eve have sinned, from the dust you came, to dust you will return. And while those other ways of expressing it are absolutely fine, please hear that. But as we look more closely at our condition outside of Christ, it's death. That's what Paul is communicating right through this chapter. Verse 1, as for you, you were dead dead in your transgressions and your sins. Transgressions, the word means kind of missing the, the target. Sins means kind of wandering from the path. So you were dead in your transgressions and your sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature, literally the lustings of our flesh, and following its desires and thoughts, like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. I know this isn't pretty, this isn't very cheery this evening so far, but it is important. Without Christ, we are dead in our sin. Now, why is it so important as Christians, if, if as we received Christ Jesus as Lord, so we're going to walk with him, why is it so important to realize that we were dead? Why does Paul go on about that so much? Well, the more we appreciate the depth of our sin and our status as dead before God, the more we realize how short of God's glory we fall and the more we see our need for a savior and the more we understand what he did on the cross for us and that's how we grow in dependence on him, in dependence on what he did for us on the cross. And the devil doesn't want us to see it because if, if we think that we were all right, that we were just a bit lost or a bit young or a bit immature, misguided or in the dark or whatever word you want to use, then we'd be tempted to think subconsciously that our sin isn't that bad. We're just a bit lost. 
And if we think our sin isn't that bad, then we bring down the seriousness of sin. And that in our mind also brings God's holiness down because the things we've done, they're not that far short of God's holiness really. And when we have a low view of God, then it becomes easier to sin because it doesn't seem that bad. We need to see that we were completely dead in our sins. His grace is entirely undeserved. But verse four, it's one of the great statements in the Bible, one of the great but God statements. It says, but because of his great love for us, God who is rich in mercy made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. Notice how he throws that in at the end there. He's not talking about grace yet, but he just throws it in. He wants us to know that this being alive, it's entirely not our doing. The fancy theology word is vivification, which is a bit difficult to say, but it just means being made alive. It's entirely by God in Christ. For it is by grace you have been saved, through faith, and we'll come back to those words. And this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God. The second half of verse eight, that it's not from yourselves, it's the gift of God. We've already seen that the grace was undeserved. We were sinful, essentially to the point of being dead. But it's not just undeserved, it's also unmerited. Now, what's the difference? It's subtle. Well, if it's just undeserved, I suppose you could say, you, you could put our, our good deeds and our, our sins on the scale, uh, and you could say, well, I've done some good things, I've done loads of bad things, so yeah, overall, okay, I don't deserve the grace. But to say that it's also unmerited recognizes the fact that really any of the good stuff doesn't stand for anything before God. We're dead. We have no merit. That's why I read about the dry bones from Ezekiel. Now, think about this with me. I'm a very simple person, so it's a very simple thought process. What did the bones do to be made alive? What did they contribute? Nothing. They couldn't. They were dead. By definition, they could contribute nothing to being made alive. Lazarus didn't call out from the tomb to Jesus, Lord, if you wouldn't mind, I'm getting a bit claustrophobic in here. No, he, he was dead. He was absolutely dead. He could do nothing. And so it follows that if we are spiritually dead in our sins, then we can spiritually contribute nothing. By grace you have been saved, and this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God. When we were dead in our sins, because of nothing we did, he sent his breath, his wind, his spirit. We heard his words, like words of the prophet in the Old Testament. We received his grace. We were vivified. We were made alive, given new life in Christ, and it's not our doing. R.C. Sproul once said that the only thing we contributed to our salvation is the sin which made it necessary. It's chastening, but it's true. All right then, but what about those other two words in the verse that I've conveniently left out so far? Through faith. Surely that's something we contribute to the process, isn't it? We put our faith in the Lord. Well, notice that it's through faith and not by faith. The difference is really subtle, but it's also really important. It's not by grace and by faith. It's by grace through faith. It's entirely by grace, and the medium through which that happens is faith. 
Very often when somebody comes to faith, they'll express that in words. They'll express that they recognize their sin and their need for a savior, and then that they trust in him for the forgiveness of sins and submission to him as Lord of their life. But it's not the prayer. It's not the raised hand or whatever it is that saved us. We are saved by grace. The way we receive that is through faith. That's really important, but it's not the faith that saves. Christ saves the faith bit is still crucial. It's how we experience the grace. It's how we respond to the grace, but it doesn't save us in and of itself. Now, I said earlier that these things are of immense practical importance. So, so what is the practical importance of knowing that, that little subtle difference that we are saved by grace through faith? Well, here it is. If faith is how we respond to grace, and we, just, we describe coming to faith in all sorts of different ways. We might say it's deciding to follow Jesus, or making a decision for Christ, or letting him into our heart. You know that image in Revelation we had last week, behold, I stand at the door and knock. Okay, we've let him in. Becoming a disciple, submitting to Christ. We have lots of ways of expressing coming to faith, and they're all great. They're all from the Bible. They're things that we do in response to grace. But can you imagine for a moment if our salvation hinged on that faith? If it hinged on what we said in that prayer? I remember coming to faith. I don't remember word for word what I said. Am I sure I said the right thing? I was pretty emotional at the time, I have to say. Did I definitely get all the words right? I don't know. I think so, but I can't be sure. What if I messed it up? And then there's all the sin I see in my life. You know, have you ever been in the position where you look at the sin that you just can't get past and you think, am I even a Christian? Really? I know I said that prayer, but can I be sure? If it was my decision, what if I've changed now? What if I've changed my mind? Could my heart have gone cold? You see, if I'm saved because of something I've done or something that I've said, then I can't be sure that I'm saved at all because I know the sort of person I am. If I'm trusting in a prayer that I prayed, then I cannot be sure that I'm saved. It's still important to say the prayer. It's still important to respond in faith. The Bible is clear about that. But I'm not saved by the prayer. I'm saved by who he is and what he has done for me. The prayer happens. The faith is the, is the way it happens. But we're not trusting in something we did. We trust him. We're saved by grace through faith. I love uh, my, my brothers and sisters in other denominations. Um, the church I come from in Monkstown, there's like five, six, I don't know how many churches in Monkstown. We like to work together. And that's always been wonderful. It's been a great way to pull resources. And I love all my brothers and sisters in other denominations. But I couldn't be all of them. You know, there's some denominations I think, okay, I, I could go along with that. And I'm not trying to pick on anybody. But, you know, I love my Methodist brothers and sisters, but I couldn't be them. I couldn't be them because according to them, it's about my choice. But the gospel's better than that. The gospel is so much better than that. I was dead, dry bones. I couldn't have made that choice on my own any more than those dry bones could have stood up and cried out to Ezekiel. But his spirit came. He made me alive in Christ and I could do nothing but respond in faith. And so I can be sure, because blissfully it doesn't have anything to do, really, with what I did. Sometimes we sing, though Satan should buffet, though trials should come, let this blessed assurance control, 
that Christ has regarded my helpless estate and has shed his own blood for my soul. You know, Satan does buffet, trials do come, but I can have assurance because he did this. He came and shed his blood for my soul and he gave me new life. And it was irresistible and I responded by faith. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith and this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God. Now don't worry, we're gonna move more quickly through the other two verses. Verse nine, not by works so that no one can boast. Okay, we get it, we're, we're dead. We couldn't do works that would save us. But the reason I think Paul brings works in here, stating that it's not how we're saved, I think is to communicate the place that works are meant to have in our life now as Christians. Because just as we weren't saved by works, so we're, we're not to live by them either. We ought to be careful of the temptation to see religious activity as a substitute for our ongoing personal walk with the Lord. We weren't saved by works, and yet so many people seem to live out their faith that way. We think we're maybe doing God a favor by our service. We don't have time in the day to pray, but, but that's okay, because sure, we're going out to that thing in church. We haven't read our Bible in days or weeks or longer, but sure, we're busy for the Lord. Works didn't save. The Lord doesn't require endless hours of religious activity. He desires our hearts. A recurring theme in the Old Testament is that the Lord desires mercy and not sacrifice. In other words, he's, he's more interested in how we're living, how we're walking with him, than religious activity. And Paul knew something about this. He had more religious credentials than most of us could dream of. In Philippians 3, he says, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Paul had plenty of religious activity to boast about, but yet he says, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Paul had countless reasons to boast in his religion. It consumed his life, but we're not saved by religious works. So we're not to walk now in them either. Remember, just as you receive Christ Jesus as Lord, so walk in him. Martin Luther said that he was so busy and had so many things to do that he needed to spend three hours in prayer in the morning. I don't imagine many of us would say, I'm so busy today, so I'm, I'll just go and spend three hours in prayer. But there it is. If you're here this evening and you're too busy to pray, you're too busy. If you're here this evening and you're too busy to spend time with the Lord, to spend time in the Word, then you're too busy. Even if changing that means that you'll let other people down, even if it leaves a church organization a bit short, I need to be careful how I talk about that as a minister, but even if it does, those things don't matter. Don't trust in your works. Don't trust in your works. Let the Lord have your heart. It's what he wants. Let him be Lord. And then finally, verse 10, for we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Now, you might think, hold on, is that not the opposite of what you just said? You've just said that it's not by works and now you're telling us we're created for good works, but he isn't contradicting himself. 
We see again at the start of that verse that we're God's workmanship. We're created in Christ Jesus. In other words, he has given us new life. Again, we're reminded we didn't do it by ourselves. And we're to do good works which he has prepared in advance for us to do. What do we make of that? Well, I don't think it means that each of us kind of has this list. Maybe an angel, you can sort of picture an angel holding it and ticking it off as we do them. I don't think that's what it means at all. I think Paul is simply putting good works in the right place. They don't come before we're saved. They come after. They're not part of our salvation, but they are part of our new life, our new creation. They don't contribute to the forgiveness of our sins, but as forgiven, recreated people, we live for Christ. And that's where good works come into the equation. We receive new life by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, according to the scriptures alone. And when we do that, and as we live out that new life, doing good works, it is to the glory of God alone. Jesus said, let your light shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. 505 years ago to the day, the 30th of October, it was a Saturday. I can imagine Martin Luther about this time of night just putting his quill down, having finished writing his 95 theses, ready to take on Wittenberg Cathedral the next morning. Probably time for a beer, knowing Luther. Luther was fond of his beer. But praise the Lord for working by his spirit to lead his church into truth. Praise him for working in us, giving us new life by grace alone so that we could respond through faith alone to the gospel and live as new creatures, as followers of Jesus for now in this world and forever. Let's pray. Our God, we are so grateful of your word. Thank you that we have it um, in language that is accessible to us. Thank you for the work of so many um, saints of days gone by who have worked with zeal untired to bring this to us, to bring to us the truths of your word and the message of hope that Jesus Christ came and died to save sinners like us. Lord, help us to understand more fully just how it is that we're saved so that we can live more fully as saved people. Lord, lead us by your spirit. Help us to keep in step with him so that we can glorify you all the days of our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.